Hello and welcome to the Event Lab podcast, your window into the events conversation. Coming up, I sat down with Tim Etherington-Judge from Healthy Hospo to find out more about the work they do improving mental health for those working in hospitality. Just cheer up, will you? Just, just you know, chin up, it'll be right. And you know, moving away from this attitude of this British stiff upper lip to a much more compassionate, empathetic um, approach towards towards mental health. But first, it's artists versus arms dealers. To what extent should venues be the moral arbiters of the events they host? Le Pen written off? The xenophobic far-right leader has been disinvited from the world's largest technology conference. And the Global Disability Summit. What can the industry learn about accessibility? Shah and Ed are leading this week's News Digest as they're joined by returning guest Richard Groves, the Group Business Development Director at Smart Group. Evening, guys. Good evening, Ed. Good evening, it's been Ed. A, a few weeks. It has been a few weeks. Charlotte, have you been on any holidays or anything? I have. I love always love a good holiday. Um, I've been in Colorado, which was fabulous. Lots of hiking, lots of lycra, um, lots of biking. It was absolutely spectacular. We rented an electric yellow Mustang convertible. Um, which was a lot of fun. American dream. American dream. And amazing to have you back, Richard. Thank you very much indeed. We have uh, yeah, Richard Groves from Smart Group with us again. Great Richard. to be back. Thank you very much indeed. In last week's episode where we discussed the proposed redevelopment of Olympia London, I have a statement from Olympia London which I would like to read to you all. And it reads, Since opening our doors in 1886, Olympia London's stunning architecture and unique atmosphere has drawn millions of visitors from across the world. Following feedback from our organisers, exhibitors and visitors, we plan to continue to build on this distinctive heritage and are investing £700 million to create an extraordinary destination for events, the creative industries and entrepreneurship. By working with world-renowned design studio Heatherwick Studio and the award-winning practice SPPARC, we envisage a diverse cultural hub for London with more public and green space. Retaining our renowned programme of exhibitions and events is a key priority. We want to keep things running as normal as possible, but we recognise some level of disruption is inevitable. If our planning application is successful, we will work in collaboration with organisers to minimise the impact of construction works. So thank you very much to Olympia London for that. For any more information on the redevelopment of uh, Olympia London, go to olympia.london forward slash future. There are some brilliant stories in the press in the last couple of weeks. I wanted to talk about a couple of things in the news which both kind of tugged at the same thing. The first one I saw was in Design Week. The headline was the Design Museum deeply hypocritical for hosting arms event, say outraged exhibitors and what's happened is 30 over 30 artists designers and activists have signed a letter to have their work pulled out from the museum's exhibition which are now finished uh, hope to nope which was all about how design has been used as a tool in political protest and politics i wanted to pull out because the design museum hosted a private function held by a global arms company the museum's been called hypocritical for hosting this private event while that show was on. What do you guys think? I suspect that the person that actually booked that event in probably didn't realise or put two and two together that they were actually hosting the exhibition and what the two actually really, <clears throat> what the two actually meant. So um, I suspect somebody terribly nice in the events sales department hadn't really thought this one through. Um, but I guess it begs the question as to whether or not venues 
have to be or should be very politically aware or take a stand of this nature or as revenue generating vehicles they have to take the business that comes their way and whether or not actually it matters who's actually paying for that event and and, and what it represents. So Richard you have a smart group obviously run Battersea Revolution and here East and and other spaces what's your view? Um, And we've just been listed at the Design Museum um, proudly and it's just what Charlotte said you know there I think it was possibly um, and a slightly clumsy booking that they didn't realise that the exhibition wasn't um, a traditional exhibition at the Design Museum based on product. It was based on um, anti-corporate artists exhibiting um, with the theme of, of Hope to Know, um, which you know, obviously was a, a, a clash between what they wanted to say and what the, what the um, revenue-earning event was. The fact that the Design Museum earns 98% of their revenue from events, um, fundraising and, and their shop and their cafes, um, means that they have to take events um, and you have to take a view whether you are just a purely a corporate venue for hire or whether you can take stands on any um, political party or any type of business, whether it be fossil fuels, defence um, or um, tobacco companies, for instance. You know, do you just not take those bookings because you disapprove of it? Or if you're available for hire, you, you can basically do what you like as long as it doesn't offend too many sensibilities, but that, that's... I think the range of type of clients that are out there who can afford um, the growing up London venues are the big corporates, mm. and they will they, someone will have a problem somewhere, whether it be banking, shareholding, whatever it might be. Is it is it is it due to the nature of the space? So I think the design museum initially responded to the to the artist by saying that you know the event had no endorsement by the museum. Signees responded saying museums are not neutral spaces. Every decision about what is displayed, how it is labelled and how it is funded is political and reveals something about the underlying values of the institution. So maybe it's, is it because it's a, it's a public institution and do these types of venues need to be more careful with, with the events that they host? Yeah, I mean, I certainly, as if I take my events hat off and think of myself as a tourist, I'm not sure museums are regarded as being political personally. And having been to the Design Museum myself... Um, I don't necessarily view that the museum has to have a political view at all or be a political vehicle of any description. I go to look at whatever it happens to be that is currently being displayed in there, whether that's mainly with the design museum, it's often fashion, um, um, alongside art. And I would question whether the, you know, the, the artists that were... Um, part of this exhibition, you know, they're being granted the advantage of of being able to showcase their work and everything. And is this potentially a further media splurge here from from their perspective by creating this complaint? Um, You know, does it really affect them? You know, the Design Museum have actually called them in to create this exhibition which is not necessarily a favor but you know it's it, they're getting it has these to be artists. funded by someone to it has keep to be it funded you know so <laughs> perhaps it's them that's hypocritical by actually you know um causing a stand on this and and museums and and, and galleries particularly can also um be accused of being um aggressive to the, to the public sometimes in a sensation exhibition at the royal academy many years ago some people found highly offensive um some of the artworks there and, and even at the grayson perry um, curated some exhibition at the Royal Academy this year, the, the big Myra Hindi picture. You know, people can be offended by art, so it's not just offended by who 
providing money to keep the venue open it's what is also in the venue itself as well and also you know i mean art exhibition well not just art exhibitions but gallery um exhibitions in general are largely a lot of them are very successful because they are um controversial in a statement the museum says having listened to the concerns of the exhibitors the design museum is undertaking a thorough review of its policies and is extending it to its commercial activities. We are committing not to have any private event hires from defence, fossil fuels and tobacco companies while we undertake our policy review. Leonardo is the name of, uh, of this company who, um, who don't call themselves an arms company, they call themselves an, an aerospace defence and security company, but are they... You know, are they any better or worse than Google or Facebook? Or? It's a very competitive corporate market out there for venues, and venues need to take um, events to make themselves um, feasible and, and, and efficient. And and do you stop taking bookings from um, cosmetics companies because they might do um, test, testing you disapprove of? You know, how far can you go on this? You know, there's the political line as well. Do you take a BMP conference or do you take a, the the Conservatives conference? And you know, do you make take a stand and, and are you the um, the moral ground to, to be there to say, I don't think this is the right people to come to my venue. You know, who are you to say that? So both of you have 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 businesses where you work with with, with with all sorts of clients. I mean, do you have any kind of internal policy on this or is it a kind of common sense thing? How do you make these decisions yourself? I mean, I personally wouldn't organise um, a rally for Hitler. Um, <laughs> I <don't, laughs> you know, I think that there are... Um, I think there are some things that you would be aware of perhaps steering clear of because they're so unanimously um, disregarded. Um, however, you know, politically, if, you know, if we had a political party that came to us and said, you know, we want to do X, Y and Z, you know, would I be concerned about doing something for the Conservative Party versus the Labour Party? No, I absolutely mm. would not. And vice versa. Um, you know, so I think... Does one say, you know, the world's gone slightly politically correctively mad um, and you sort of think, OK, one has to be a little ambivalent about the the choices that, that you make. And at the end of the day, we're planning events and one event is as, is as good as another, but not not at the expense of, you know, taking something that is so unanimously Objectable. Uh, yeah, objectable. Yeah, exactly. we, we, at Battersea, we took um, an event. It was a fundraiser for the Garden Bridge project um, when it was still live. Mm. And we thought that's a lovely thing to do. Big fundraising, the great and the good. Um, there, it was a beautiful event. But we suddenly realised there was people so vehemently opposed to it that there was going to be protests outside. And we had to up the police presence in the park. And you know, think, but This is a fundraising dinner for a bridge. Mm. You know, we're not. We, this is not a political party or a rally for anything... Untoward. This is just a very lovely fundraising dinner in, in a venue near the river, which is ideal for them to location to have it. And you think, when when do we start having to contemplate whether we can take that sort of event because it might cause a bit of an upset in, in Chelsea Bridge Road? It's extraordinary. And, and and you can't because at the end of the day, if you know, if you worried about that, your revenues would drop by probably sort of thirty to forty percent. If you know, if you started looking at everything that anybody ever had a had a issue against you know it becomes slightly crazy mm. you know yeah. and people i mean it begs the question do people have sometimes just a little too much time on their hands to actually start really sort of writing in and sort of complaining about stuff like this because you've got to just get on with it 
Yeah. You know, we're, we're, we're an industry. We're not. We're not a charity. No, we're not you know? moral arbiters. We, yeah. we we're out there as a commercial business, and we take the take the, the inquiries and, and and put on the events. But Charlie, so so pick up on something you said. So you you um you were talking about things that were so unanimously, uh, publicly, uh, disregarded or or, or 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 objected to by by the public and. And actually, that that kind of leads leads into the next story that we're kind of going kind of broadly on the same theme. So this is uh, Marine Le Pen, a far right leader in France, who was initially meant to speak at the Web Summit, events events boss of the the the, the Web Summit. You know the Web Summit in Portugal, huge, huge, huge event. Paddy Cosgrave, he justified it initially as it is is the right to free speech. And Marine Le Pen has got a got a big following in, in in France, and why shouldn't she speak? Since being been rescinded, she's no longer speaking, following a huge, huge online backlash about about her speaking. So I guess I mean, how um, you know is this just is this just about the power of, of of social media and and when when people can amplify something to this degree, then do you have to change your thinking? I think it's quite frightening if you have to bow down to the voice that's out there um, at, at that kind of a level. I mean, was she going to use it um, as a platform to really deliver some of her very controversial beliefs and um, and policies? Who knows? But, it, you know, that's not what this was about. It wasn't necessarily about her beliefs on immigration and, you know, Islam and, you know, whatever. Um, I'd like to say well done, Lisbon, for winning the event actually in itself because you know Portugal needs revenue like that so it's great um but um you know I think again one's got to be take these things a little with a with a pinch of salt well she got 34 percent of the vote at the last election which means she's not a complete shoulder candidate so there's people who you know have followed her and, and do believe in what she says um Free speech is, is thrown around quite a lot at the moment, and that you know it came up after the the Boris article in the Daily Telegraph of that was the defence mm. that he should be, able to be allowed to say it in a, in, a, in a typical jokey Boris way. If you take offence to it, okay, you take offence to it, and then, but that's it's come out in a, in a newspaper. You, you're, you're allowed to say more or less what you like in the newspaper. Mm. It will f- offend some, make other people laugh. She could have been put on the rostrum as a um, a disruptor of the event, you know, let put on someone instead of just having someone who's climbed a mountain with bare feet and, and how amazing they are and got down again. You know, she could just be the person saying it how it is from her perspective and making everybody think about stuff and before they go back to the techie side of the um, seminar and, and get on and do the rest of their forums. But, um, I think she should have gone and, and you know, unless she, everybody was cancelling their subscriptions and saying I'm not coming, so they you know they'd lost a thousand out of the two thousand people, then someone's not going to like the fact she's there and they probably won't turn up to that session. But that's, that's you know, that that's putting interesting people in front of thinking my, people. I think, I, I mean, my question is, you know, you're going to a summit about web de- the, the advancement of web development and, and, and of technology, right? So are you really going to not go and not absorb that knowledge for the sake of something that may not, wind you up when you get there because you don't know what the content's going to be I mean so that would be my question you know the fact that she's speaking it's got very little to do with actually the broader content of what and the knowledge that you're actually going to gain from something like that to me the two are pretty um disbanded they're two completely different things um and I think people are more bound up with you know oh I've got to fight this and I've got to take a stand about that and you know 
you know, I often look at all the people that are picketing outside Westminster because our office is around the corner and sort of thinking, what are you people doing all day? I mean, you know, why? how come you've got the freedom of time to come and stand here and picket about all of these things? Because I don't know about you, but I've got to go to work. (laughs) (laughs) So it seems like you you go broadly on the side of, you know, it has to be the commercial decision for the person who is hosting the event or or, or owns the venue that is is hosting. Where someone like Marine Le Pen, you have a massive, 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 massive online reaction. Maybe it's not so good. Well, it's massive in in terms of... I, I, I don't I don't know what the, the the groundswell of opinion was. It said it was a massive feedback, and, and they they took fright, and, and then they cancelled her. Um, and, and I think the worrying thing is that they, in their statement, they also said that they want to now take soundings of what people will accept and won't accept. And I think that's beginning to open up. You know, they're they're in charge of content. If you start putting it into committee and saying, well, should we have so and so to come and talk to us, or do you think that's going to offend that half of the room? You know, that is not their job. Their job is to put people in front of people who in, stimulate conversation, make people think about stuff. They might vehemently disagree with them, but it's, it's a view and it's a point of view. 100%. Unless it incites I mean, violence. It's, it's... And then it's completely against freedom of speech because then basically you're completely monitoring what you think is safe and acceptable. And that's not worth going to in my book in terms of because you're not walking away with a diversity of opinion anyway because mm-hmm. you're, you're only producing opinion that you think the majority of the room wants to hear. Remember when Nick Griffin went on Question Time for the mm. first time? I can't remember how many years ago it was. But yeah. there was a huge backlash about that. But actually, I think the whole country probably watched that. Didn't they? <laughs> yes, exactly. Yeah. And he he didn't he had the platform. Um, he flunked it. It didn't go well. And obviously, because you know, what he said wasn't resonating with many people, and and he did, gave himself a very bad show. And so I think it it worked really. It gave him the platform to to make a a, a good argument, which he failed to do, and therefore never appeared again. So maybe that's the way forward. <laughs> Let them dig their own holes. Yeah. Richard, I, was, I wanted to talk to you about the the Global Disability Summit, yes. which Smart Group hosted, what was it? Very recently. Yeah, 23rd and 24th of July. Yeah. So a huge, the first ever Global Disability Summit in collaboration with the Department for International Development, International Disability Alliance, and the government of Kenya. Yes. Yes, peculiarly. And I think that was that was really important because it showed that it purely was global. There are over a million um, people with disabilities in the world, of which um, a large proportion of them in, in the um, developed and undeveloped world between the two of them. And then Kenya, I think, led the charge on this to say this is something that needs to be talked about. Um, from an event perspective, it was held at here east on the Olympic Park. Um, and it really opened the book for us that we'd, you know, we were used to putting ramps in and, and making sure that our events are as accessible as possible. But this was a serious step up um, and we had to think of everything from where the dogs would sit down and, and drink and, and how tall the tables were so people could actually register um, should they be using a wheelchair. Um, the, the walkways between the, ch- the between the chairs and the in the plenary sessions, just an extraordinary amount of things and, and, and braille and large print and looping and all the things that in in, in isolation it's quite easy to organise. But when you're doing it for twelve hundred people a day for two days, and also doing all the um, the infrastructure and, and and the handling as well to get people in from overseas and get them in the right hotels and airport assistance when they arrive and getting the tickets to them in the in the right format that they can read and 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 understand them. It's just extraordinary. What so you're smart handling the travel is. as well. Hmm? 
handling the travellers yes, off. Yeah, exactly. Trying to trying to get them all into the into the airports and and off to Stratford. Um, it was a great education for Smart Live, which is the event department within um, Smart Group that organised it. Um, Here East were delighted to have it because it, it showed that they, their venue is suitable. We had to um, winch in some accessible toilets to put on the on the terrace outside because there weren't quite enough in the, in the building, but shows that you can do it if you need to. Um, and, and, and everybody was delighted to how it went. A little like an incredible event because I, obviously, Higher Space, we work with, with so many venues and, and being truly accessible is really is very very difficult mm. and takes takes a huge amount of planning and yes and, and every time you take you take a, um, a client round a venue whether it be Guildhall, Freemasons Hall or, or, or a nightclub you know the obvious question is what's the accessibility like for everybody here and you know quite a lot of these grade one buildings who you know, built in the 1300s are not naturally accessible and you can spend an awful lot of money trying to do it um, you know, like London Underground spent sixty-four million pounds trying to make more stations accessible to to wheelchairs, and you know it's very very hard. But doing this event has made us feel that actually we should, and you know the venues we work in, we should work very closely with them to to provide ramps and to make sure that the lifts are in a good place and they're not coming in through the goods lift, which is demeaning and always a bit grubby and and dusty, and comes in at the back of the stage rather than the front of the stage. Um, and it was it's it really woke us up actually it's a, it was a great great event to do imagine a huge amount of planning went went into it and uh, how six do, months yeah six months of planning mm. and do you have any i mean I've, I've read a couple of posts actually by smart on it but i guess kind of shared learning from this from this type of thing is is is, is a fantastic thing for the industry yeah and i i that's interesting because we have done quite a lot of um, press on the back of it and there's quite a lot of case studies and quite a lot of bits and pieces we've, we've put out online. Um, there was quite a lot of TV coverage, including Kenyan TV, so we were on lots of news channels. Um, there were 3.3 million um, Twitter hits um, over, over the week. and But it is, it is very useful for that venue now to understand it. But also, um, we, we've got another sort of slight point of difference at Smart Life to say this is the extreme that we've gone to to get this to work. Um, and if we even just like 50% of that into a normal venue for um, a, 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 any conference for any other big company, we can overlay what we've learned about it. Now, how to get that into the greater market and how to get it um, into venues, I think we're going to have to start having some kind of scheduled programme to go in and, and you know, I, I do some talking at events and things every now and again and trade shows. Maybe this is something that we should be talking about a lot more. Well, it like a fantastic event and a huge success. I found it fascinating reading about it and I would encourage any venue to to go and to go and read about it. It's the Global Global Disability Summit at Here East um, a couple of weeks ago. I wanted to briefly talk about High Speed 2 just because it's been in the news recently, but we are we have gone way over our time. So all I'm going to ask of you both is a is a one line on high speed two is this good for events yes <laughs> Short and I, I, it, I agree there, there tends to be two lines for trains rather than one line but um yes i i think it is a great um great opportunity uh, it, it will move events out of the capital um and and the aim of it is to spread the wealth into the into the north and to the regions and of course it will do that yes fantastic been fascinating talking to you both as always charlotte thank you very much thanks Ed. It's and richard great. thank you again thank you for joining well. us yeah. and see you again soon Absolutely. thank you thanks now next up i'm speaking to tim etherington judge the founder of healthy hospo 
a community interest company that aims to provide information, advice, support, and training on all aspects of mental and physical health for those working in hospitality. Tim himself has a long background in the hospitality industry, so alongside getting his advice on steps to improve workplace mental health, I asked him for his take on the Hackney Borough Council's new licensing policy. Hi, Tim. Welcome to the Event Lab podcast. Good morning. Good morning. Um, yeah, so basically <coughs> wanted to get you on today because uh, mental health is a serious issue in the industry. I talked about it last year at Event Lab. Uh, had a panel on it. It was one of the very first episodes we had on the, on the podcast was a, was a panel to address it. But that's the thing, it is such a, an all-pervasive and severe issue, I think, in events and hospitality that I think it's something that we need to keep addressing. Yeah, totally agree, totally agree. Um, the hospitality industry is by a number of measures one of the unhealthiest in the world, um, from the highest rates of drug abuse of any industry in the world, third highest rates of alcohol abuse, um, some of the stats coming out of the US are, are particularly frightening. Like if you're a bartender in the US, you are more likely to suffer from workplace mortality or die at work um, than a police officer. Even though they have guns and criminals with guns. Um, so the industry is not in a, in a healthy place. Um, it's an, an amazing industry to work and I've worked in it for 20 years and I love it to pieces. Um, and that's why I'm so committed now to of trying to help people who work in the industry um, live a little bit healthier, try and help also the industry as a whole and the people that, that kind of work at the top level, own the bars, the restaurants, the brands, the companies to have a deep look at the industry and see what we can do to kind of make it a healthier place for people to work. Yeah, so I mean, so you, you founded Healthy Hospital. I wonder if you could find out a little bit more about that and kind of how you came to kind of start championing. Yeah, this sure. Um, I've been in the industry for 20 years now, without giving away my age. Um, and I've worked as a bartender, managers, barback, um, worked as a chef, done all sorts of jobs. But for seven years, I worked for a big global um, liquor company as a, as a brand ambassador um, and had one of one of those jobs that everyone dreams about, the global, a global brand ambassador role. Kind of fly around the world, go to exotic locations, teach people about drinking whiskey, go to parties, you know, the job that everyone thinks they want. Um, sounds like the dream. It sounds like the dream, but um, that dream also comes with some, like everything in life, you know, it comes with, with some downsides. Um, you know, the the 100, out, 100 plus flights a year, the endless jet lag, the, the terrible nutrition, the lack of exercise, the severe um, lack of sleep, and the, and the loneliness and isolation, because you're constantly traveling and being on your own. Um, and all of those combined together into this kind of like toxic soup um, led me to have a, a breakdown in 2016 um, when I was at the Athens Bar Show and tried to commit suicide. Um, managed to get through that and then started to speak very publicly about my struggles with mental health um, and what I found was and it really kind of set the set this or planted the seed for healthy hospital was um, it wasn't the messages of love and support from my friends and family that I got when I started to speak publicly about my my depression and my mental health it was all the messages I got from people and hundreds and hundreds of messages of people telling me their stories and their struggles and their problems um, and it made me kind of realize that there is a huge problem that no one at the time was really talking about there's a few brands doing stuff a little bit here a little bit there um, 
but no one had started a company to really start addressing the issues of health within the hospitality industry. Um, and it's a terribly vulnerable industry. The workers who, who are in the industry are, are very vulnerable. You know, it's the, the worst paid industry in the world. There are very few kind of protections, particularly now in this country. You've got zero hours contracts, a, a rife. You know, most most people I know who work at the kind of coalface don't have um, health insurance, don't have pensions, don't have any even contracts. You know, there's no protections for them at all. And there's very little unionization, so they're extremely vulnerable. And you know, you've got 70, 80 hour weeks. Um, very low pay and it's just they need help um, and the industry needs help and if we can create a healthier happier industry um, it's also going to be more sustainable for businesses to open you've got 90% of businesses will go out of out of business within the first three years this industry and there's a huge problem with staff turnover as well at the moment and, and retention of staff and if we can create a healthier place for people to work where people are happier they're more productive, um, you'll see staff turnover rates decrease, businesses will become more robust in times of difficulty. Um, so it makes kind of sense for everybody. Mm. Yeah, completely. I mean, because you guys work with, charities work with Benevolent? We do, we do a lot of work with the Benevolent. They're an amazing charity um, dedicated to the drinks industry. Um, they've been around for I think like 135 years now. Um, and they will provide support for anyone that works in the hospitality industry. If you worked in the industry for two years or more, they will provide financial health and care support through your entire life. So you could have worked as a bartender for three years, and then when you get to 80, you can still rely on the benevolent for support. Um, incredible charities. Yeah, that's, that is impressive work. Yeah. I think, there's all, I think there's a lot of talk, just widely at the moment, with companies who are keen to talk about the issue but not how to address it and mm -hmm. there's a lot there's a lot of uh, lots of people are keen to be seen talking about it there's, there's less action I think it's difficult with mental health like if you compare it to to physical health right? if if you cut yourself or if you if you're working in the kitchen and you burn yourself or people know how to deal with that you know, if you cut yourself, they know you put a plaster on it or a bandage, you know, clean the wound. People are understanding of, of how to deal with physical injury. When it comes to mental health, um, people are not yet knowledgeable in how to, to deal with um, mental health illness. Um, so I'm currently working um, on that as well. So there's a, a great organization that have started to put together mental health first aid kits. Um, so in November, I'm going on a, a training course to become a mental health first aider. And I think that is the first step in starting to educate people around not only what mental health is and, and the different types of mental health and what causes the problems, but then also how to deal with them. So if you're, a, you know, if you're a manager and you have some staff who are suffering, it's an incredibly stressful situation for you as a manager because you have never been trained in how to deal with people who are suffering from, from depression or stress or anxiety so it's it's then trying to train those managers then they can help those people um so i mean there's so many aspects of it that we need to we need to address mm, absolutely i mean i think it's a i guess it's a difficult place like to be on both sides like the manager you're not sure how to deal with it but when you're when you're suffering to come out and especially people at work and say i have this issue 
there's a, there's almost a fear that you're then seen as less valuable because you, you don't want to if especially if you're reliant on with zero hours contracts with intermittent hours you need to be a person that they go to rather than someone that they oh well that person is a problem yeah totally there was a report that came out yesterday um, looking at the number of sick days taken by British workers um, and the number of sick days taken by workers has come down from about seven, I think it was seven and a half to just over four days per year on average. Um, and but if you look at them, you'd think that would be a cause to celebrate. Oh, great, we're all healthier, we're all more engaged at work, so we take less sick days. But if you kind of dive a little bit deeper into the data, what you find is that people are scared to take days off sick. So they're coming to work ill because being uh, sick is seen as a sign of weakness, as you say. Um, so they're more less likely to get promoted. They're more likely to lose their jobs. I mean, the rise of zero-hour contracts, which are, and the gig economy. You know, if you don't turn up to work, you don't get paid. Um, so workers are becoming more and more vulnerable, and that's why people are kind of turning up to work sick. Um, just to go back a little bit to you talked about uh, mental health first mm -hmm. aid. Kind of what what sort of goes into that? So it really starts with with the workplace. So it's creating a great workplace um, where people feel like they're part of something, part of a team. They make sure that they're getting the required breaks that they need um, so they can kind of go and have some downtime. And then working with individuals to make sure it's they're kind of also managing their own mental health. Um, so it's just like two, two prong um, uh, approach of working with the businesses and the individuals together. Um, so when it comes to looking at managers or, or the first aid kit rather, it's, you know, if you identify a problem um, with someone's mental health, it's firstly is kind of trying, not you know, we're not trying to, to create psychologists here on psychiatrists, you know, it's just trying to help everyday people manage um, other people. So it's kind of trying to identify the signs as the first step and then having some strategies in place rather than just going, I'll just take some time off work or just, you know, how it's been in the past. I'll just cheer up, will you? I'll just, just, you know, chin up, it'll be right. And, you know, moving away from this attitude of this British stiff upper lip um, to a much more compassionate, empathetic um, approach towards, towards mental health. I think that is, in, is incredibly important. I mean, do you think, I was just, just thinking about any any venues that we might have listening to the podcast. I was wondering if you maybe had any uh, tips or advice that they could implement just to create a, a healthier workplace there. Yeah, um, for me, it all starts with with sleep. Um, if good health is was a house, sleep would be its foundation. Um, and then the walls would be made up of kind of good nutrition, regular exercise, um, good mental health, connection as well, you know, being fam good family and friends and, and lots of connection, but sleep is its foundation. Um, so I would encourage anyone here, anyone listening that has, that has a business to talk to your staff about sleep, make sure that they are kind of prioritizing sleep on their time off, make sure that their, their shift patterns allows them to kind of have that big break that they need and have that eight hours of sleep treat your staff like a sports team you know if your if your football team turn up and everyone's sleep deprived they haven't had they've been eating mcdonald's and burger king all the time they're overweight they're not very fit they're going to get beat and they're not going to perform and it's the same with your with your hospital you know with your team at work you know 
make sure that your team are, are well slept, they eat some good fresh food, they're getting some regular exercise and they are connected with their friends, their family, do group activities together. Um, because if your staff are, are firing on all cylinders and they're fit, they're healthy, they're well slept, they will perform much better for you. Yeah, I think la- the last, last thing I wanted to discuss really was um, drawing back to, to the last episode on our News Digest, we had some discussion around the uh, Hackney Borough Council's new licensing mm-hmm. laws that would encourage venues to shut up much earlier. They're not going to be allowed to play loud music past, uh, I think, 12 p.m. Mm-hmm. Uh, I was to sort of get your take on how that's going to affect a lot of people who are working in that kind of late night industry. Yeah, it's an interesting one. Um, so from, from my health point of view, where sleep is such a priority um, and, and such a big part of what we talk about, I, I'm pro this. I'm like, right, quieter nights you know, means that people get better sleep, there's less disruption. So for, a, for the overall population, uh, it's, it's a good thing, I think, because you know, people will get better sleep, hopefully. Um, from an industry point of view, um, it's, it's extremely um, difficult to see a, a positive on this. Uh, London is already not a late night city. I've been fortunate enough to travel around the world and experience like proper late night cities. Um, and London is definitely not one of them. Um, every, you know, everything closed by 12 p.m. Um, is really going to harm the industry a lot. If you kind of if you're working um, a nine to five job, you finish at five, maybe six, and you go home, get changed, go out. Maybe you get out by eight, and then you've got a four hour drinking window. This is what creates the binge drinking culture as well, because you're like, oh my God, I've only got four hours to, to get all my drinking in and all my fun in for the night. So you just, ah, shots, shots, beers. Um, and if you look at countries that have much longer kind of opening hours, it's less of that rush to, to drink. Um, I've, I've been fortunate enough to meet London's night czar um, and we, we had some chats with her. Um, I met her at a, an event um, uh, around chefs, chefs of the future. Um, and she, you know, her, her attitude is that everyone wants to work at night. You know. For her, if they're looking at people applying for jobs at night, it, it's in huge demand. So she thinks that there's no problem with, with nighttime shift work. Whereas the World Health Organization has recently classified nighttime shift work as a class 2A carcinogen, um, which is the same kind of cancer-causing level as lead paint, for example. And most of us wouldn't know the dangers of lead paint, and we certainly would never paint our houses using lead paint because it's now illegal. Um, so if you, you're going to have this nighttime to work, we, there needs to be support for people that work at night. Uh, you know, if you, you know, we all go around at night, Try finding healthy food at night. It's impossible. The only places that are left open are junk food places, burgers, kebabs, pizza, um, these kinds of things. Probably the healthiest thing you can find at night is a falafel kebab. Um, so if you're uh, you know, working at night, uh, yeah, get some food after work and all people, your only choice is junk food. Supermarket, most of the supermarkets are shut and you're probably quite tired as well so you don't want to go home and cook some food. Um, you know the resources that are available to people that work at night are so diminished compared to people that work at day and that needs to be balanced out as well Um, so yeah it's a tricky one it's like if 
So there was this nice culture where people were you know, drinking out. Uh, you know, the, the, the shift for drinking patterns moved earlier. Um, it'd be great so you know people could get all their fun times in and close at 12 and people go to bed it would have a beneficial impact on people's healthy work and hospitality um, but the fact is that people want to party late into the night and what this will do this new law in Hackney is it will drive people to house parties um, you know they'll go and buy their booze at supermarkets they'll go home and, and they'll party in people's homes instead um, so I think financially it's just another blow to um the bars and the industry and you know not every not everyone that goes out wants to create lots of noise not every bar is like a, a you know a super loud disco you know, lots of my friends own high-end cocktail bars um, at tales of the cocktail last week um, the best new cocktail bar in the world is coupette and hackney um, and it's under huge financial stress right now you know, this is one of the best cocktail bars in the world, hands down. People go in, they have delicious cocktails. It's French themed. It's incredibly elegant and sophisticated. Um, you know, it's like a fine dining restaurant. It's one of the best in the world. And yet, because of these laws that are coming into place that it can't open past midnight, and it's really struggling. You know, and this is a place that should be celebrated. You know, and people should be encouraged to go there because it. it, it it encourages kind of responsible drinking, sophisticated drinking, you know, it's not shots and beers and, and party and as loud as you can, you know, it's elegant cocktails, it's sitting down, conversation, um, and that's the kind of stuff that, that is really good, you know, for local cultures. Um, I think it's, it's a tough one, like, I could talk about this all day, so... Um, I, I think that community bars are an incredibly important part of local communities. You know, I've seen it in, in countries all over the world, that little neighborhood bar at the, you know, the bottom of the apartment block or on the corner of the, the community is an incredibly important place where people come to meet, they come to kind of get to know each other, to celebrate, to commiserate. Um, and if we start destroying all of these places, and forcing people into private homes. We are isolating people more and more into these kind of disparate communities. Um, and we need to kind of turn that around. And bars and nightclubs and restaurants are where we have traditionally kind of gone to meet new people. And alcohol is a wonderful um, tool for helping us break down the social barriers and kind of getting to, to meet new people, make new friends. And that's what bars have been there for since they were first invented. Yeah, thanks so much for coming in. It's really, oh, it's been a pleasure. Really, yeah, really informative to, to chat to you. I mean, where can people find out more about Healthy Hospo and maybe? Um, go to our website, healthyhospo.com. Uh, you can find us across all social media as well, just as um, Healthy Hospo. Um, yeah, so we provide a lot of education on, on health. So we look at sleep, um, exercise, nutrition, connection, so there's lots of educational side of things there. We also do events, um, like weekly yoga classes, spin classes. We run weekly workshops, lots of speaking um, events around, around the world. Um, and then we also work uh, with businesses. We do B2B work to help businesses kind of um, improve their health and wellness in the workplace or with brands who are looking to kind of get into that space as well. Okay, great, yeah, thank you very much. Oh no, thank you for having me. 
Now, to finish the episode, we wanted to talk about the Higher Space Awards. The nominations have closed, so we wanted to shout out all of the great finalists shortlisted for each award, including the official reveal of our finalists for the Superstar event organisers. First up in that category, we have the award for Best All-Round Event Experience. Shortlisted, we have Aurora Energy Research, IPSE, that's the Association of Independent Professionals and the Self-Employed, and Penguin Live. Shortlisted for Event Team of the Year, we have Audley Travel, DWF LLP, and Rant and Rave. In our Forward Thinking Venues category, the first award is the Best All-Round Use of Technology, One Wimpole Street, King's Place Events, and the Mayfair have all been nominated for that. For the Best Newcomer Award, we have Iron Bloom Shoreditch, New Road Hotel, and Unit London. In the running for Greenest Venue, we have BMA House, Lord's Cricket Ground, and Ortus. Best Venue in the Community, we have Coin Street Conference Centre, Good Hotel London, and the House of St Barnabas. For the Best Unique Venue, we have Andaz Hotel London Liverpool Street, Mail Rail at the Postal Museum, and Roundhouse. Shortlisted for Venue Team of the Year, we have the team at Century Club, the team at London Marriott Hotel Kensington, and the team at Lumiere London Limited. For our Unsung Hero Awards, we have Hannah Anderson, the Senior Venue Sales and Events Planner at BMA House, Shauna Dunlop, Marketing Executive at Bounce, the home of Ping Pong, Olivia Parrott, Venue Consultant for Weddings and Private Events at ITA Venues, and Rachel Hume, Head of Events at King's Place Events. On to the Most Popular Venues Awards category. For the Best Experiential Venue Award, we have Carousel, L'Atelier de Chefs, and Putchak White City. For Best Wedding Venue, we have Dartmouth House, One Whitehall Place, and The Queen's House. For Best Private Dining Venue, we have Bentley's Oyster Bar and Grill, Sea Containers Events, and Six Stories. For Best Conference Venue, we have The Barbican, King's Place Events, and The Southback Centre. Finally, the awards in our Modern Venue Marketing category. We have The Best Online Marketing, Bounce, the home of Ping Pong, One Park Crescent, and Putchak White City. Finally, for the Best Venue Portfolio Marketing Award, we have Cam and Hooper, Social Entertainment Ventures, and Street Feast. Now, while the opportunity to enter for the awards has passed, you can still buy tickets for the event, which promises to be a great evening of drinks, entertainment, and dinner, celebrating the very best in the industry. Thanks very much for listening to this episode of the Event Lab podcast. As ever, you can find links to most of the things mentioned in the episode in our show notes below. For more on Event Lab and to stay up to date with all that's going on, you can go to eventlab.online. If you have any questions or you'd like to get in contact with the show, you can email us at eventlab at hirespace.com. Finally, you can follow all that we do on Twitter and Instagram using the handle at eventlab underscore online. Thanks very much for listening.